0: Well, I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 110. And as you turn there, um, let me say what a privilege it is to be here, to be standing here, to open God's Word with you, and what a special privilege it is to be doing it in this building from this pulpit, um, because not only is this place special, but you guys are all special to me and to my family, and it's an honor. Um, So, with that, Psalm 110, will you please stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Before I read, I'm going to pray for God to bless the reading and preaching. Our God and Father, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, we ask you in your mercy to enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your Word. Would you give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility? May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we ought, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to you the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children owe their parents, since it has pleased you graciously to receive us among the number of your servants and children. May the words of my mouth. And the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it to us. Please be seated. In the United States, we have a shared aversion to monarchy. In fact, our country started by getting rid of the king that we did have. In our individualist mindset, we fail to see why, why or how one person has the right to exercise authority over the, an entire group of others. I found out this week this sentiment is not isolated to us. In fact, there are currently either 28 or 29 monarchies in the world, depending on how you define it. And most of them are just figureheads or extremely limited in their authority, and the rest are tyrants. What used to be the cry of, no king but Jesus, has become the cry of, no king, not even Jesus. But really, we all know the truth, as written by that great theologian, Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. There is no true autonomy. We're all subjects, either of the kingdom of God or of the kingdoms of men. This is why the church has always held firmly to the kingship of Christ as a vital doctrine. In fact, our standards, the Westminster Standards, include this office as part of the mediatorial work of Christ. It means it's necessary for our salvation that Christ be our king. Consider how the larger catechism explains this role in question and answer 45. Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people for himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, And powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. The scripture does not speak of the republic of God, nor of Christ as the elected representative of the world. But it tells us of a kingdom over which Jesus is the absolute sovereign and Lord. We don't have time tonight to unpack every aspect of the kingship of Christ. But in Psalm 110, we will see Christ the King on display. Our text tonight is the most referred to or quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in it, the Lord Jesus is portrayed as the King set above all creation. But far from just a figurehead or a self-obsessed tyrant, King Jesus is worthy, he's kind, gracious, and just. He's a good and loving King whose reign is for the good of his people even as it shows his own glory. So let's walk through the psalm together. We'll focus on four ways Jesus' kingship is represented the king who is God, the king who is reigning, the king who is a priest, and the king who is a warrior. So, first, the king who is God. You'll notice this is a psalm written by David. Often we skip over these introductions at the top of our psalms, usually because we're not really sure what a maskil is or what, according to Mahaloth Leonoth, is supposed to sound like, Psalm 88. But in order to uh, to correctly understand all that's going on in Psalm 110, we need to know David is the author, and he's writing of God's revelation to him. So in verse 1, we see Yahweh is talking to a king who is greater than David. David opens by saying, the Lord said to my Lord, and you'll notice in most of your Bibles, that first Lord is in all caps. This notes that the Hebrew name of the covenant God is used here, Yahweh. Or Jehovah. Of interest, though, is who it is that God's addressing. This psalm was always taken as referring to the Messiah, a descendant of David. But Jesus brought it up when debating the Pharisees in the theology quiz bowl from Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And how could they answer him? Plainly, David is writing in the psalm of his superior, But in Jewish thought, the father was always seen as greater than the son. There's no man on earth, especially one of his own descendants, that the great warrior king David would have called Lord. The king in view here is no mere man, but he must be greater than man. This is no less than a statement of the deity of the Messiah. Even further, the king sits on God's throne at God's right hand. This seat of honor communicates equality and dignity, And in authority. What man can claim equality with God? What king in history has been granted authority not only over a kingdom or a people, but above all creation, even the angels? To claim this throne for oneself would be blasphemy for anyone except God. Which is why Yahweh himself extends to Messiah the invitation to sit next to him in power and glory. This king's authority is over more than a single people or geographical area or a point in time in history. In fact, it's higher than any other man or even the angels. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No other being in history can claim the authority of this king in Psalm 110. What's more, this king is co-reigning with Yahweh. The king's holding the scepter, but it's the Lord who extends it out from Zion. David conquered the surrounding nations, and he handed his son Solomon a kingdom glorious enough that foreign leaders came to marvel at it. But neither of them has this close communion, where they hold the scepter and the Lord's the one that sends it out. The Messiah is so closely identified here with Yahweh that the kingship of one is attributed to the other. While in history, God had ruled Israel through his anointed king, here we see the covenant Lord ruling his people as the great king. The Messiah and the God of Israel are one. This king is Jesus, which of course must be the case. Only in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, can the son of David be David's Lord. Only the word of God incarnate can answer the call to sit on the same level as Yahweh. Only Jesus is so united with the Father that he can rule with him in righteousness perfectly. Only Jesus has been exalted in his resurrection and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Consider what we heard from the Apostle Peter in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus did all this. He is all of this for us. And for our salvation. Peter's audience rightly understood the gravity of what they had heard. They knew the end of the psalm, and they asked, What then shall we do? What hope is there for those who oppose this king, who is God himself? And that same question should ring in our hearts If this king is both the son of David and the son of God, what shall we do? And the answer comes repent. And be baptized, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call. How many times do we submit ourselves to lesser kings, to lesser glories? Our attention is drawn away from the God-man, seated above the angels by temporary comfort, by temporary power, by temporary riches. Do you, like me, long for security? in a world that's constantly shifting. We look for it in the approval we get from that perfect picture we post on Instagram, in a raise or a title change at work, in a grade at school or a friendship, a perfect marriage, in seeing what our kids achieve, in our dream house, in anything and everything that promises fulfillment. But it only leaves us wanting the next thing, or else once we get it, we devote all our energy guarding and protecting it. And in the end, none of it lasts. Our only sure hope is that our king is God, firmly fixed in heaven. But I think sometimes we misunderstand exactly what this kingship of Christ looks like. So now, let's look to the king who is reigning. We often talk about the already and the not yet aspects of Christ's reign. And in verses 1 through 3, we have a picture of the alreadyness of Christ's kingship. We're not waiting for Jesus' return for him to become king. After his resurrection, Jesus himself claims all authority has been granted to him. In fact, we've seen this in our study of Ephesians 1. Christ has been made the head of all things. This is the testimony of Peter we heard from Acts 2. But while Jesus as God is sovereign over all human affairs, over the entire physical universe, even the spiritual realm, The kingdom in view here in the psalm is especially focused on the church as it grows and extends throughout the earth and as Jesus leads his people in conquest across the world. The reign in this psalm, though, is spiritual. Messiah rules from God's right hand. Jesus doesn't reign from Washington, D.C., London, Beijing, or even Jerusalem, but he reigns from heaven above. Earthly kingdoms are often structured around a shared ethnicity, or a shared geography, or a shared economy, or a shared history. But while it's true that Messiah's rule goes out from Zion, the emphasis here is that this is the origin, it's not the capital of the kingdom. Zion is the mountain where the temple was built, the place where the covenant presence of God resided with his people. Of course, the physical temple has been destroyed now that it's obsolete. And the church is now the temple of God, where God's Holy Spirit resides. We, the people of God, are citizens of a spiritual kingdom, and our lives on this earth are as resident aliens in the kingdoms of man. We're looking forward to our arrival in the city, not made by human hands. And this aligns perfectly with Jesus' own words and actions. He himself said his kingdom was not of this world. He left when the crowds tried to come and make him king by force. When Jesus was born, Israel had been under the rule of several different empires in succession. He was a poor carpenter in a remote corner of of an oppressive and tyrannical empire. Yet he never once attempted to overthrow the day's political structures. He discouraged his followers from doing so, and he demanded submission to the governing authorities. His own disciples were comprised of political enemies, Just picture the band of men following Jesus around the countryside. On the one hand, you have Simon the Zealot, a revolutionary who would have endorsed violent overthrow of the Romans. And on the other, Matthew, the establishment government lackey, participating actively in an unjust taxation system, targeting his own people. And the call to both was the same. Repent of your sins and follow me. And I think here we need to look at ourselves. In a volatile political environment such as ours, we're pulled into tribalism along ideological lines. When we are more willing to suffer for or defend our political affiliation than we are for the sake of Christ, we have lost our way. When we despair because of the state of politics or the academy or the arts or the economy or society, we show we're trusting in princes horses and chariots, and not in the Lord. As important as life under the sun is, our central identification is with the king and his kingdom. So hear me when I say, you have more in common with your MSNBC-loving Christian cousin than you do your Republican Mormon neighbor. You share in real and true communion with your Fox News-watching brother in Christ in a fundamental sense that is not true of your decent agnostic neighbor that wants to see social justice reform. When we act like that's not true in our everyday lives, we are denying our citizenship in Christ's kingdom and living like we belong to the kingdom of man. All those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation are our fellow citizens in the kingdom of heaven, and our call is to love them as brothers and sisters. And we do so by altogether looking toward our king and away from what we may find lacking in one another, trusting him to bring the kingdom to maturity. We also see this spiritual kingdom is advancing, but not by human effort or by legislation or the sword. It advances only in the power and wisdom of the Lord. He's the one who sends out the scepter. This means, first, we shouldn't be surprised when the gospel is attacked or evil is done, Christ rules in the midst of his enemies, not in their absence. But we must respond correctly to this reality. As Christians, we don't start or join revolutions. While the church should speak out against unjust rulers, we are called to be willing to endure persecution for the sake of our Lord, never compromising the gospel or our obedience to God's word. We can only do this knowing that we ultimately answer to Jesus and not to men. On the flip side, the church does not lean on the government to make disciples. We can't institute enough laws to change human hearts. We cannot reform enough institutions to bring dead sinners to life. The state can and should defend the church from persecution, but it cannot build the church. That's not its function The governments of the world are the servants of God to restrain evil, but they cannot turn sinners into sons. In fact, a brief study of history will show us every time the state and church join together on mission, it ends with both falling apart. Even our individual acts of kindness and our lives of obedience are insufficient on their own to build the kingdom. Only the Lord can do that. And he promises to do so as the gospels proclaim through word and sacrament And as we live in keeping with the character of our king and his kingdom law. Because while his kingdom cannot be advanced by his people alone, it must advance with his people joyfully joining in. Look at verse 3. In love for their king, they offer themselves freely in the day of his power. They willingly obey their king. They love his law. They're dressed in holy garments. They're wearing the ceremonial uniform of priests, not of war. Have you ever seen a regiment dressed for review? I think of the Queen of England's honor guard in their red coats and their three-foot-tall black hats. They look really impressive as they stand in their glory, and it reflects the glory and the power of their nation, but if a battle were to break out, they're actually dressed inappropriately. What they're wearing is a hindrance to fighting. It's because these uniforms represent a secure foundation for the kingdom already established. Our holy garments are similar But there's a further aspect. Remember, Israel's call, and it's repeated for the church in the New Testament, is to be a kingdom of priests, bringing reconciliation to the world. The Great Commission is our call to arms, and as we make disciples, the kingdom grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our king has taken our own rags off of us and placed on us these glorious holy garments, clothing us in his own righteousness, In putting them on, we look like him. This means, of course, our lives will look different than those around us. Our priorities, families, our attitude towards God's law, sin, toward work, money, politics, our neighbors, will make us stand out. We may even seem odd to those that don't belong to God's kingdom, and that's okay. We need to fight the temptation to remove these garments of holiness just to put on our old rags. His people gather when he calls. This is one reason we come together every Sunday. Every Sunday when we come together, we're joining together with the church of all places and all times as one body. We're joining in spiritual warfare, declaring Christ's rule and reign over all and pushing back the powers of darkness. The kingdom will spread as far as the dew covers the earth. When we're tempted to despair at the side of the church, Seemingly powerless, marginalized, helpless. Remember the promises of Christ. He's with us always. He will redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gates of hell will fall before the attack of the king and his army. Notice also the birth imagery of the entrance to the kingdom. From the womb of the morning... This should bring to mind Jesus' statement to Nicodemus. You must be born again. No one becomes a citizen of this kingdom on their own will or power. It is the free love of the king who brings them in by the rebirth of the Holy Spirit and makes them a part of this kingdom. So, if you are a citizen of this kingdom, you're born again, clothed in holy garments, united in love to the king and all his citizens. This is true of you, whether you feel like it or not. Brothers and sisters, if you feel unfit to serve in this kingdom, remember that in your own power, you are. But the king has loved you anyway and brought you in. You cannot disqualify yourself from this kingdom because you could not qualify yourself for it in the first place. Look away from yourself. Look to the king. Join in his people freely offering themselves to him now in the day of his power. If you've not entered into this kingdom, if you're trusting your own power, possessions, position, or anything else, today is the day of salvation. Repent, believe in Jesus, receive the robe of his righteousness and an inheritance in an everlasting kingdom. Next, we see the king who is a priest in verse four. And Chris preached about this last week, talking about Christ's unique priesthood, so we won't spend much time here but we do need to make a couple of observations because in the, it's, it's kind of weird. In the middle of this song about a king, we have a declaration about a priest. Yahweh makes a second promise, and this one, he underlines, it will not be revoked. The king is a priest forever. Never in Israel's history was the king a priest. In, in fact, kings who took it upon themselves to perform priestly duties were chastised and punished. The first king of Israel, Saul, lost his throne in part because he disobeyed the command and made a sacrifice. God would not permit great King David even to build the temple, much less serve as a priest there. So this makes Jesus a king unlike any other, and it should change how we see his rule. He rules not for his own glory and benefit alone, but for the good of all his people his intercession as our priest is effective because he himself is perfect, and because his self-sacrifice is perfect, and because he has defeated his enemies and none can stand against him. Often we think of Christ's victory beginning when he walked out of the grave. We think of his rule beginning when he, at his ascension, when he ascended to, to God's right hand. And in a certain theological sense, that's correct. But there's something remarkable about Christ's crucifixion. Think of it. He's nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns driven into his head to mock him, and a sign is placed over his head, King of the Jews. His friends have abandoned him. The crowd, shouting his praise only days earlier, have dispersed, and mocking scorners are all that remain to observe his final hours. He's punished as a criminal, beaten, nailed to a tree, put to open shame and run through with a spear after he dies. This, this is supposed to be the warrior king who puts his enemies to flight. Do you remember what we heard in our assurance of pardon? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says, For although in the cross there is nothing but curse, It was nevertheless swallowed up by the power of God. There is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as the gibbet on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, the prince of death. Namor has utterly trodden them under his feet. This is no mere execution. It's a coronation. The Son of God himself succumbs to death in order that he may defeat Satan, sin, and death for us. Jesus is obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God exalts him and gives him the name above all other names. The crucifixion is not the low point of Jesus' ministry. It's the central and defining point. When Jesus lifts up his head and shouts, It is finished. He's not admitting defeat. He's claiming the victory, and this is only true because he is the priest king giving himself a sacrifice for his people. This is good news for us as we move to the final section of this psalm, because without this sacrifice, we fall under the category of his enemies. Kings lead in conquest, they execute justice, and if Jesus were only a king, that's bad news for us. We would deserve the wrath described here, but because he's also our priest, he took that wrath on himself, and instead he gives us the riches of his kingdom. In the day of his power, he conquers his enemies by subduing them, reconciling them to himself, and making them citizens and fellow heirs. But there is another day to consider, the day of wrath and the king who is a warrior, in verses 5 through 7. The picture in these closing verses is one that may be hard to swallow for us. This is a picture of the already and the not yet. This pursuit has begun with his total and sure victory in his cross, resurrection, and ascension. But it won't be brought to completion until Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead, fully displaying his power even over death in the resurrection of all mankind. In these verses, we move from the priest-king calling together his willing people in the midst of his enemies. And now we see a soldier, pictured alone, having secured the victory, scattering the remnant of his enemies. And he's now in hot pursuit, chasing them down until none is left standing. From the comfort of our prosperous pocket of the freest, richest country in history, we readily accept gentle Jesus, meek and mild, But our sensitivities may be offended by Jesus on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. A few years ago, I read a quote that I think will help us here. It was written by Miroslav, Miroslav Volf, a professor at Yale Divinity School, who's originally from Croatia, and he writes this about the judgment of God. He says, My thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. I suggest imagining you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You give them this thesis. We should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. A God without judgment is a God without love. And in the real world, broken by sin, a God without judgment is, not, is a God not worthy of worship. Victims of genocide, oppression, or violence know this. The persecuted church around the world knows this. If you have experienced or witnessed true injustice, you know this. When you see or you experience unjust suffering, and you burn with anger and you cry in despair for answers, to see things made right, the priest king is your only hope. Because as our priest, Jesus also suffered injustice. The one true innocent, he was betrayed, beaten, and killed. Even more, he took the full brunt of the wrath of God. Come to him. Tell him of your pain, your anger, and hear his answer. I know. We do not have an unsympathetic high priest, but one that suffered in every way that we do and much more. He gives us psalms of lament so that we can bring these burdens and lay them before him. But he also gives us imprecatory psalms because, as king, he will leave no stone unturned in his pursuit of justice. Every wrong will be made right, every evil deed will have its due punishment meted out. Sin and unrighteousness will be completely eradicated from the world, and shalom will be restored to God's creation. This is not accomplished by the church. Those joyous people in holy garments. They're not in this picture. Verses 5-7 through portray the warrior in all his might as he catches every enemy, wins the territory, and drinks from the very streams of those he has conquered. I'll admit, this may seem terrifying. And if we're not among those who have freely given themselves in the day of Messiah's power, it ought to be. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for us, For God's people clothed in his righteousness, we have nothing to fear. In fact, we look forward to the day of judgment because for us, justice has been served. Our high priest took it for us and intercedes perfectly for us. Our king works all things for the good of those who love him. And when he executes justice, it is for his glory and for our benefit. He avenges the injustice done to his people. He sees and will not forget. No one is immune. No worldly power, authority, or money is enough to save from his judgment. He strikes down kings and chiefs alike. You've got to serve somebody. And if you don't serve King Jesus, you're choosing slavery to a master that will be destroyed by the rightful king. It will only end in misery. Then, at the end, after every last bit of darkness is snuffed out by the light of the world, he delivers the kingdom to his Father and dwells in peace with his people forever. This, this is our glorious hope. So as we close, I'd like to think for a minute about Christ our King and how this relates to Advent. This psalm was written by David at the absolute pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel. But within a couple hundred years, the kingdom would fall apart and go into exile. The people would wait for Messiah to return or to come to exercise this glorious conquest to restore the kingdom. Israel sang this song for 1,000 years and nothing. God was still in heaven, but his people were captives in their own land. And can you imagine when Jesus comes? And he goes to worship and he sings this psalm. Can you imagine him singing it and thinking, I'm here, it's me. We have the benefit after the first coming of Christ of a fuller knowledge of the king who is now reigning on the throne. In a very real sense, one of us is seated at the right hand of the father in heaven. He sent us his spirit. He promised to return. But we, even more than Israel after the exile, are pilgrims where we live. We've now waited nearly 2,000 years to behold our king. Sometimes it's hard to believe in his victory. Sin and death have been overcome, yet our loved ones die. We battle sin and temptation. We suffer sickness. Injustice prevails. The wicked prosper. Between the already and the not yet, we wait. But let us, like faithful Simeon, not give up hope. He waited in the temple and he saw the Messiah. We have the promise. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We will see him. So let us then say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me?